So tonight we're going to continue through the book of Nehemiah. So you might want to open up your Bible to Nehemiah 10, which is going to be on page uh, 406 of the Blue Pew Bibles. Now we've been looking at what it means to rebuild after a hot mess, because that's what the Israelites had been through. And we're really sort of applying those principles to ourselves on this side of COVID-19, which was a hot and still is a hot mess. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at Nehemiah 9 as the Israelites uh, came to uh, came to God in confession of the ways they'd sinned and forsaken God's covenant. And this week, uh, we're going to look at the continuation of this covenant renewal ceremony as they move from confession of sin to response of repentance uh, to God's forgiveness. So, uh, with that context in mind, please stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, continuing in Nehemiah, starting in chapter 9, verse 38. Because of all these things that we've been reading about, uh, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the sons of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, and nearly 80 other names. And I know you wanted to hear me read them all, but I'm not going to subject you to that. Uh, so instead, we're going to uh, skip on over, although we're still going to address the names, uh, but we're going to pick up in verse 28. The rest of the people... The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of Yahweh, our Lord. Anywhere you see Lord in all caps, that's the proper name of God, uh, often pronounced Yahweh. Uh, and we uh, want to do all his commandments of Yahweh, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it in to the house of our God according to our fathers' houses at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of Yahweh our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of Yahweh. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of all our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. 
and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of our house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. The people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. All that I have read and summarized is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O oh Lord our God, you were doing something very ordinary as you worked through what we read of that is pretty ordinary means of ordinary people to do exactly what you intended there in Jerusalem with and for your people. So we ask that as we look at Nehemiah 10, we would hear your word and see how you work with and for us just as you worked with and for them. And that we would be instructed uh, how you are calling us to live as your people, your covenant people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, it is a young man's fantasy uh, to want to do big things that really matter. But then I talk to someone older and I find them asking, looking back at their lives, did anything I do ever really matter? And that's when I realize this isn't just a young man thing. This is an all of us thing. We're all asking, does anything I do really matter? And through the recording of the ordinary way of repentance and the worship of these Jews 2,500 years ago, Nehemiah 10 tells us, yes, what you do matters to God. Because let's face it, this is some detailed minutiae here. Uh, In fact, just to tell you all the little details and address every little thing would be more like reading a commentary than hearing a sermon. Uh, Because there's just so many ordinary little details in here. But God recorded this in His Word, which means it matters to Him. And since our God is the God of the universe who created all, brought Egypt out, uh, brought Israel out of Egypt, worked international politics so that uh, Israel went into exile in Babylon and now have come back out, Uh, And since our God is the God who raised our Savior Jesus from the dead, since that is who our God is, who says that this matters, we can know that we as God's people also have our ordinary little lives, decisions, and actions matter. Our ordinary little lives, decisions, and actions matter to this cosmic, all-powerful God. And this episode serves as an example of what preparing to live the quiet, godly life looks like. As an example of what repentance looks like. 
So I'll say it again, in Nehemiah 9, the Jews had entered into a covenant renewal ceremony where they were uh, rehearsing, confessing their sins and all the ways they had betrayed, abandoned, and failed Yahweh. And now in chapter 10, they're turning and saying, and we're going to do better. And here's all the ways we're going to do it. Rah, rah. Go Sooners. Or Cowboys. Right? They're planning for repentance and rebuilding. And what we see them doing here is an example of what we are to be doing. You see, when you're reading the Bible as one big story, then everything that happens to the Jewish people is also what has happened to our people. Because it's our story. The church is the continuation of Israel. They're one and the same. And so what is taught to Israel also applies to the church. And what we observe here is meant to teach us what it means to follow Jesus Christ our Lord, the Jewish Messiah and our Savior. And so what we're going to see all through Nehemiah 10 is that because we are a kingdom of priests, we must not neglect the covenant. We, that is, we have ordinary roles to play in the ordinary life of the church that matter extraordinarily to God, and that is how it is supposed to be. We are a called and forgiven people responding to God's grace by not neglecting His house. And we respond with one renewal, two repentance, and three rebuilding. Uh, and that is the three points that I did not get printed on the back of our worship guides, uh, renewal, repentance, and rebuilding. First, renewal. Now, uh, after Israel confesses their sin, the Israelites turn to a renewal of their commitment to the covenant. So chapter 9, verse 38 begins, Because of all these things we've just confessed and all the ways you've delivered us, we make a firm covenant in writing. Right? What, what's more firm than putting it down in writing? You can make a handshake all day long, but once you sign a contract, you know it's serious business. So on this sealed document now are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So all the representatives of all the people, but naming particular people within that group. Because of all the sins they've committed, and because of all the ways they know God has forgiven and delivered them, they are ready to recommit, renew their commitment to the covenant. And this is a response to what God has told them and a response to what God has done for them. You could call it, as I said earlier, a covenant renewal ceremony. And this should be fairly common language to those of us here at Heritage because... If you've ever paid attention to what's on the top of one of our morning worship guides, a service of covenant renewal. It's what we do each and every week here at Heritage. Uh, we have a covenant renewal service. During our worship services, we remember all that God has done for us. We remember who He is. And yes, we confess our sins. And we think about how to repent. And then we have forgiveness declared over us and we respond in prayer and praise and renewal that should lead to further response of repentance in action after the worship service. You, you could think of what's happening 
in Nehemiah 10 and in our weekly worship service uh, like a marriage vow renewal. Any of you guys ever been to one of those? Yeah. So, you know, um, the relationship normally isn't over uh, and normally isn't under any sort of strain, although sometimes actually it can be used as sort of a reboot. Uh, but there's really something right about revisiting and restating the vows we've made before all and before one another and before the Lord that all the more solidifies the bonds of marriage and all the more solidifies our own engagement to be the Lord's. That's what the Jews do here. It's what we do each and every week in worship. It's part of why worship is valuable for our souls because it brings renewal in response to God's salvation. Now, uh, the Israelites start their covenant renewal with this list of names that Peter really wants me to deal with. So, I'm going to tell you this. There are two, two encouraging truths from this big long list of names that I didn't read. But I don't need to read all 80 of them for you to get the truth. You can read them on your own. (laughs) Uh, So, first, let's just take verses 1 through 27, and then we'll sort of catch verse 28 at the end. First, as I said, these names are the officials and priests and leaders and heads of families. That's who all these names are. It's the people that represent everyone. But nonetheless, they're not necessarily prominent names of people who hold central roles in the Bible. In fact, a lot of these names, this is it. This is the only time they show up in the Bible. They didn't show up before, and they'll never show up again. And we have no idea who they are. But you know what? God thought they were worth including in his word. Because these individuals matter. They mattered to God. They mattered to the people that were there right then. Uh, Eugene Peterson often talks about how God, while he may be all-powerful cosmic authority, God is a very earthy God. He gets in where the dirt is. He gets in with the, where the people are. And he knows their names. Right? That's who our God is. He's a God that knows our names and knows our particular situations. So these people are serving, they're working in, and God is working in and through them particularly right there, right then. And we need to always remember that God is dealing with us in real, particular ways. God has a particular interest in you particularly, Alan. You particularly, Joanne. You particularly, Brian. God cares about us particularly and is interested in us, even if he's letting us live a relatively Uh, as far as the world is concerned, a a relatively obscure life. And this continued, right? The people Jesus was dealing with in the New Testament, they're they're famous to us because we read the Bible all the time, hopefully. Uh, But they were nobodies in their day. And unless you read the Bible, they're still nobodies. They're only famous to us, guys. Um, Freebie. Most people in the world don't read the Bible and they don't know the Bible we think the way we think they should. So just don't ever assume that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are famous to anyone but you. The world doesn't know the Bible. 
Sometimes Christians don't know the Bible, which is tragic. That was a freebie. Um, right? So Jesus was dealing with people that were nobodies, but they mattered to him. They were valuable to him. Which means while you may feel unimportant, no matter how we feel, the infinite God who made every atom in existence finds you important. Important enough to create you, Moose. Important enough to rescue you, Jim. And important enough to spend eternity with all of us. God works in our lives to draw us to himself, particularly. And he custom tailors every one of our lives for what is best for our souls. It's better than a custom suit. It's better than a customized car. It's a tailor-made salvation, particularly for you. And that's actually one of the beautiful things we find out every time we receive new members. Uh, this last week, we, we heard the stories uh, 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 of Ken and Kim and Emma and heard how God particularly worked in their lives. And he saves us all to bring us into his entire people, the kingdom of priests. And this is where we come and catch the second encouraging truth, that we are all a kingdom of priests. Right? Verse 28 expands the list to include everyone. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, you get the idea. He sort of names everyone again and says, we enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of Yahweh our Lord and his rules and statutes. I'm going to sneeze. Or maybe I'm not. Uh, and at the end of all of this commitment, uh, verse 39 reiterates that all the people of Israel are involved in all these promises going on here. Right, Verse 39, For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. So what all this tells us is that not only are we all important to God, but we all have a role to play within God's people, God's kingdom. Which, remember what I said Israel is? The church. We all have a role in God's church because God's people are all priests of the triune God. This is the way God's people have always been. Yahweh told Moses all the way back in Exodus 19.6, You, all you people I'm going to call to myself, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And it's what all the apostles knew, and it's why Peter taught in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, Christians, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this is what we call the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Now, that's not a doctrine that says all people are pastors. It's not a doctrine that says all people are elders. It's not a doctrine that says all people have the same role to play. But it is a doctrine that says all... Uh, sorry, it's not a doctrine that says all people have the same role to play. Hopefully I said that right. Uh, but it is a doctrine that says we all have 
a role to play in God's kingdom. And there are lists of gifts and roles in the New Testament. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, Romans 14, uh, or Ephesians 4 that says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ. So, It's saying we all have something we're to be doing in the kingdom of God, contributing towards what God is doing in the world, but particularly contributing to the church, which means our custom-made local church. And again, this is nothing profound. It's bringing the tide, it's gathering the wood, but it's something that contributes where we are. As commentator Dean Ulrich puts it, Most of the residents of the New Jerusalem humbly but devotedly work for the advancement of God's kingdom in their relatively little corner of the world. So what are you doing? Now, before Israel gets busy a-doing and uh, renewing, a-doing and renewing, Israel identifies that first... For their renewal, they need to repent. Sometimes we've got to repent to renew. Right? So confession of sin in chapter 9 produces amendment of life in chapter 10. And they do this with, again, what Dean Ulrich calls concrete itemization of repentance. Uh, just as there's a list of particular ways uh, that they're going to serve the Lord, they're going to make specific measurable actions to which the people commit themselves under oath in public assemblies. So church membership normally accompanies public vows, and their membership and renewal involves public repentance and naming ways that they need to particularly repent. Now, when God brings us to see that we need repentance— Repentance involves the present work, the right now work, of breaking bad habits that neglect God's will and then going and creating new ones that promote his interests on earth in our own little corner. Right? Repentance involves coming up with a practical strategy of steps to take in specific situations that are necessary for change. And then prayer has to get combined with deliberate action. One mistake that we can often make when thinking about repentance is thinking that repentance is merely confessing our sin and asking God to change us. we got to go do something. If you don't know how, if you don't know a thing you're going to do to repent, you're probably not repenting yet. So just as our confession of sin needs to be specific, Just as God forgives our specific sins, our repentance needs to be well thought out and involve specific action. Sure, repentance is a change of mind, turning from our sins uh, to turn to God for whatever we've been turning to our uh, idols for, right? But if we don't take the time to make real plans for repentance, we're not taking covenant renewal seriously. Uh, Think of it this way. 
you wouldn't apologize generically to your spouse or to friends without saying you're going to change the specific way you offended them. So why would you do that with God? That's part of taking the covenant seriously, is remembering that our covenant God is a person with whom we interact specifically and particularly. I like the way I'm repeating particularly. I have to pronounce that. So, now the Israelites move from repentance, right? And they essentially uh, say, all right, Lord, rah, rah, we're going to do everything and we're going we're to keep the entire Mosaic law, which is a bit much. I don't know if you've read Leviticus lately. I'm actually reading it in my morning devotionals right now, and I spend a lot of time going, <laughs> I mean, not because it's not God's word, but because there's just a lot in there. Um, right? And so, uh, after they make this general commitment to God to renew and follow the Lord and keep the whole Mosaic law, verses 30 through 39 uh, then focus on naming what they're going to do and address their particular failings and the special issues of their day that seem especially grievous in their particular moment. And that's a good example for us as individuals and for the church. The church should always be asking, what are the major issues of our day? So, to stick with this text, uh, we can ask, what major issues of their day touch on major issues of our day? Well, I'm going to explore three areas. Uh, Three areas that the Israelites address for their specific repentance and rebuilding. Uh, And those are the areas of marriage and intermarriage with unbelievers, Sabbath and commerce, Uh, And then I'm going to sort of throw the rest of the passage under the umbrella of tithes and offerings. All right, so now we're talking about how the the Israel commits to specifically and particularly rebuild in response to God's covenant renewal. So first, marriage and intermarriage. Uh, In verse 30, the Israelites commit not to give their children uh, in marriage to pagans, that happen to be in Jerusalem or in the land. Now, many have misunderstood this passage. And they have said that this is proof that interracial marriage is sin. Right? The Jews shouldn't marry non-Jews because of race. And in the South, in particular, this got said, and it's on the record, therefore whites and blacks ought not marry one another. This is not about interracial marriage. I'm just, it's not. I won't argue that. Um, now, because, And we know this is true because there are many examples of non-Jews by birth being allowed to join the Israelites and marry into the family with God's blessing. Therefore, that can't be what it means. God-fearers become Yahweh worshipers and join the Israelites through marriage all the time, and they are welcomed, and that is encouraged. Rather, what the prohibition here and the prohibition it is in response to all throughout Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Joshua is a prohibition not against interracial marriage, but against interfaith marriage. 
You see, Joshua had warned that marrying those who worshipped foreign gods would bring consequences to the Israelites. And that was proved, if just read from Judges forward, because every king of Israel, most notably Solomon himself, had their hearts turned away after other gods when they married these pagan women that did not worship Yahweh. Right? And so this is why there is a continued prohibition on marrying outside the faith even in the New Testament. Right? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, if your spouse dies, you're free to remarry, but only in the Lord. And even the principle in 2 Corinthians 6, while it's about business arrangements, and that's a whole complicated, that's a whole other sermon, there is a deeper principle in there about staying separate in some sense from those who do not share our faith. And again, I shouldn't have said that because now you've got all sorts of questions that I'm not going to address. So there. Um, anyway, there is this continued prohibition on marrying outside the faith, even in the New Testament. And in our context today, we, we mostly have say over who we marry. And so when we decide that we're going to commit to someone who is not committed to the same fundamentals we are, we're in for a hurting, right? We, we cannot enter into the most important lifelong relationship we have and expect true intimacy if our hearts are not set on the same central thing, and that is our God. And we will find ourselves, we will find ourselves slowly pulled away from our commitment to the Lord. And so, like, there's only a few folks of Marian age in this room, uh, but there you go. Uh, the second place the Israelites renew and recommit to rebuild to keeping the law of Moses is in the area of keeping the Sabbath. Now, uh, I preached on the Sabbath a couple of years ago, uh, and so you can find that on sermon audio when we went through the Ten Commandments. But I can basically summarize that whole sermon by telling you that Sabbath is a gift, right? Remember, the Ten Commandments are, are, are God's uh, rules for a free people living freely. Uh, and so Sabbath itself is a gift meant to give us a taste of the eternal rest to come, meant to show us God's goodness, meant to provide justice for all people of every station by giving them rest. And Sabbath is built into creation itself, and it's how we are meant to operate at our peak. And these people the Israelites committing to keep the Sabbath was a special commitment because it's something they had not been keeping, right? They hadn't been celebrating the Sabbaths or the festivals they'd been commanded. They hadn't been keeping uh, the seventh year and forgiving exaction of debts. Uh, and right, just look at all these things. We're going to forgo our crops on the seventh year. We're going to forgive people's debts on the seventh year. We're not going to go when people are doing commerce on uh, the Sabbath, this means that the Israelites are committing to being excluded from a significant portion of the economy. This is a commitment that will require real sacrifice on the part of the Israelites. They're saying, we will not be ruled by the almighty dollar, and neither should you Christians be. But in order to not be ruled by the almighty dollar, they ain't going to have as many dollars. And that's just real. I, I remember I was this girl, I'm, I'm still really good friends with her. Um, 
I, I remember I remember very specifically, we were driving to Redeemer Prez over here. I was like a brand new Christian, but for whatever reason, we drove up from Norman to Moore, and we got in this conversation about how difficult it was to keep the Sabbath because all of our friends around us who didn't keep the Sabbath had an extra day to do their work. And we really had to say, yeah, keeping the Sabbath involves trusting the Lord. So not only are they making financial sacrifices by keeping the Sabbath, they then oblige themselves to give all of these tithes and offerings, right? There's the showbread for the various feasts and Sabbaths in verse 33. There's the wood offering in verse 34, uh, which interestingly is not something commanded in the law, but it's still something that needed to be done to fulfill the command of Leviticus 6, 12, and 13. Right, there was uh, God, Yahweh had said, the fire on the altar shall be kept burning. It shall not go out. And so planning for the wood was just sheer practicality. And so I'm, I'm here to tell you, if, if you're a big picture person like me, if you tend to neglect the details, I'm glad my wife's not here right now, um, right? There is something very godly about practicality. There's just something very godly about practically making sure you keep your promises to the one you love, especially your Lord and Savior, and planning those details out. Uh, and then there's the first fruit offerings of verse 35. Uh, and without addressing all that, they go on to say that this is largely to support the Levites and the priests. That is, the temple workers who keep the proper worship of Yahweh running the proper way. Now, all of this sounds like a lot. It's a lot of sacrifices, it's a lot of work, it's a lot of planning. But let me ask you this. Have you ever known someone to commit to something? To commit to a race, a, a marathon? To commit to being a musician? To commit to being an athlete? To commit to some social organization? And you had to make all these oaths and promises. And you had to make all this effort. I mean, people don't generally think that's crazy. People normally don't think it's crazy to take low pay and hard work to serve your country through the military. People normally don't say it's crazy that the fellowship would give all to destroy the ring in Mordor. Right? Uh, people don't think it's crazy to, for Michael Phelps to get up at 4 a.m. and swim. So why do we think it's crazy that the God of the universe who loves our eternal souls would ask us to do some stuff? Now someone may ask, and this is a good question, wait a minute, preacher, it's supposed to be all about grace. I thought the whole point is we're saved by grace. I thought there was nothing we did to get saved and be in right relationship with God. I thought there was nothing we did to stay in right relationship with God. You taught me, Wes. You taught me, Wes. We're converted by the Holy Spirit, we have faith in Jesus, and we are right because of what he did for us, not anything we did for him. Yes, that is all true. Absolutely. You get it. You, you finally get it! Because you're finally challenging me with that. I've been waiting for that. And there is a proper covenant response of love to that beautiful truth. Right? God's grace is that when we 
One of God's many graces is that when we don't respond properly, he continues to love us and forgive us and correct us by drawing us into those covenant responses. We aren't saved because of what we do for God. We don't stay saved by what we do for God. But there is absolutely an appropriate response to God's love that requires obedience and sacrifice and seeing that his name is proclaimed and praised. And not responding that way is sin. So, to what commitment and sacrifice are we then called? Well, that's a question we need to answer as a church. What does our membership within the covenant people in this particular covenant community obligate us to, or to whatever church you're a member of? And are we following through on those obligations? Friends, Christians, and church members, you have a role to play in God's kingdom and in this church or any church you're a part of, all in service of the mission. The Israelites summarize their purpose in verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God, and that's right. Much of what we do is rightly so that God's kingdom will not be neglected but nourished. And spoilers, by the time we get to Nehemiah 13, they're going to be a train wreck, okay? (laughs) And as it did before, so it will be again. Failing to keep their mission before their faces will lead to a breakdown of their entire society. Maybe you can think of a church where that's happened. That's why we need to keep our mission ever before us. Right? Christian love. God's truth. Loving God. Now I'm naming other people's missions, but whatever. Um, loving God, loving people, loving the city. That's city presence thing. Uh, you know, reaching the neighborhood. We need to, whatever. We need to keep our mission before us. Glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. So, we have a lot of reasons to keep our church membership vows with joy and gladness. It's all the sort of grace I've talked about so far. And we have much reason to sacrifice and give generously because God has forgiven our sins and done so much for us. And part of our reasonable response is to take care of worshiping God by how we live our lives in our churches and communities. Israel responded to all the way that that all that Yahweh had done for them, and we now respond to something far greater because We not only have everything Yahweh had done then, we have everything he's done since, including giving his own son on the cross so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And it is good and right to glorify him because remember what we said in the beginning. Through Christ, we are a kingdom of priests and we do not want to neglect the covenant. We have ordinary roles to play in in the ordinary life of the church through ordinary renewal, repentance, and rebuilding. And that's how it's supposed to be. We're a called and forgiven people responding to the good news that God has given us His grace. We are now privileged members of the kingdom of priests through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed blessed to be a kingdom of priests through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we ask that now you would be at work in our lives, preparing us to go out and respond to these truths this week, where we need to renew, draw us, 
to yourself to know your love anew. Where we need to repent, show us our sin, and Holy Spirit, help us think about how we need to repent specifically. Where we need to rebuild, respond, and be about your kingdom business, where you are calling us to your service, whether in flashy, incredible ways or whether in quiet, behind-the-scenes ways. Holy Spirit, guide us and give us the joy of serving your people because of your grace. All this we ask you to do in through Jesus' name. Amen.